0: Good evening and welcome to the show. Well, if there is anything that politicians, bureaucrats and technocrats of all shades have made clear over the past couple of decades, it is that you, the people, can't be trusted. The latest example of this was provided this morning when Prime Minister Anthony Albanese released the wording of the proposed change to our constitution to incorporate an indigenous voice to parliament. It says, quote, a proposed law to alter the constitution to recognize the first peoples of Australia by establishing an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. Do you approve this proposed alteration? Sounds simple, but it's not. The complexity exists in what you are not being told. Who will be on this panel and how will they be selected? What powers will they have? What role will the High Court play? And this is the most significant concern, what limitations will be put on the voice's power in the future? New Zealand had an advisory panel like this once. It was called the Waitangi Tribunal, and it was established in 1975 to do the same thing that Australia's proposed Indigenous voice to Parliament will. But as John Story at the Institute of Public Affairs found recently, quote, In New Zealand's equivalent to the Marbo case, the Lands case of 1987, New Zealand's highest court held that the Treaty of Waitangi was binding on the New Zealand government, in effect becoming New Zealand's second constitution, although no New Zealand voter got a say in the matter, unquote. New Zealand is now co-governed along ethnic lines. Anthony Albanese can make all the heartfelt reassurances he likes about how the voice will work in practice, but we aren't voting on them, we are voting on the question above. And frankly, without some sort of guarantee that the meddling woke High Court justices can't one day decide to start pulling the panel's strings, then Albo's version of how the voice will work is about as useful as an electric vehicle charging station at a deniliquin ute master. But worse, the wording is deceptive. When it says recognize the first peoples of Australia by establishing an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice, it's actually conflating two issues into one. It is almost certain that all Australians, or almost all of them, would like to recognize the first peoples of Australia in their constitution. There are not many reasons why our constitution can't acknowledge their existence on the continent prior to 1788. It's a statement of fact. But to entwine that with by establishing an an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice is to suggest that this is the only way to do it. It's not. We could recognize this continent's original inhabitants without giving them an undemocratic voice to Parliament. But you, the people, can't be trusted to know that, let alone vote on it. Much was made about the Prime Minister's emotional state when he announced this thing. Today, news.com.au reported, Anthony Albanese had tears in his eyes as he revealed the wording of the referendum question and proposed constitutional amendments in an emotional press conference. The Prime Minister made an impassioned plea to Australians to support the voice. Well, so there's no bias in the government then. The ABC pondered the intensity of the announcement. Under a headline that would be familiar to readers of trashy women's magazines, why is it such an emotional day? It reproduced a couple of zingers from the Prime Minister. It's a big deal, he said. It's about justice. I feel, as the Prime Minister, an incredible responsibility to make a difference. Then he said the quiet bit out loud, there's a whole lot of things we do in this place that no one will remember in a year's time or a day's time, this matters. Whoa, the prime minister and all our federal MPs do stuff that they forget the next day? How much are we paying these people? A more accurate answer to the ABC headline writer's question, why is it so emotional? Is well, duh, it's emotional because this is an emotional proposal. The whole indigenous voice to parliament is short on detail and long on warm, fuzzy feelings that, contrary to what the prime minister says, deliver absolutely zero in terms of justice or making a difference. If Albo wanted to get emotional about indigenous welfare, he had a chance to do so when he visited Alice Springs in January. He might've popped into the type of homes where fathers are either drunk or absent in jail, where life expectancy is lower and suicide rates higher, where alcohol abuse is rife and where truancy leads tragically to a life of delinquency, unemployment, and meaninglessness. Plenty to get emotional about there, Albo. Instead, he held a couple of hastily convened meetings in pleasant offices and pledged an extra $250 million in funding before scuttling back to Melbourne to spend two days at the Australian Open Tennis Tournament. Then again, maybe Albo got emotional at the announcement today because he was lonely. Attorney General Mark Dreyfus was there, but where were his other parliamentary colleagues? Have they sensed that the voice to parliament will fail and are waiting in the wings to offer a fresh start when Australia's rejection of it taints his prime ministership? If so, it would be yet another example of politics utterly contaminating the goodwill of the Australian people to help their Indigenous brothers and sisters. The main reason we are in this predicament is the Bringing Them Home report 25 years ago created the fiction that white people removing Indigenous kids from their families in the 19th and early 20th centuries were guilty of genocide they were not. They were providing disadvantaged children the opportunity of a better life, an opportunity not being offered to kids who desperately need it today. We happily allow disadvantaged white kids to be removed to better foster homes, but condemn indigenous kids to the hellish households they were unfortunate enough to be born into. If that's not racist, nothing is. But the government doesn't want you to know that. And the education system doesn't want your kids to know it either. In a book called Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Education, An Introduction for the Teaching Profession published in 2015, is this line, The policy of forcibly removing indigenous children fell within the international legal definition of genocide. Child removal policies were genocidal because the principal aim was the elimination of Australia's indigenous peoples' distinct identities. Elimination of their identities? How does that constitute genocide? Australians were assuming responsibility for the descendants of the original inhabitants of this continent, trying to help these kids grow up happily and healthily in a modern Western liberal society. And this book, which is written for Australian school teachers, insinuates we were trying to kill them, which is the actual meaning of genocide. The book from which that quote came was edited by University of Sydney academic, Dr. Kay Price, who is on the board that wrote the new Australian school curriculum. In other words, this disgusting, cynical, black armband view of Australian history is now thoroughly embedded in everything our schools teach. Which is why, despite what you and I might think about it, Albo's Voice to Parliament referendum might just have a chance of succeeding. Well, to discuss the likelihood of the Voice to Parliament referendum being approved by the Australian people, let's bring in former Labor Minister, Gary Johns. Gary, welcome.
1: Thanks indeed, Fred.
0: Gary, the black armband view of Australia's history is now thoroughly embedded in our school curriculum and has been for some years. Do you think that enough young people have been brainwashed into voting in favour of this symbolic gesture?
1: No. Well, Fred, you and I will remember being at school and did we believe everything our teachers told us? Of course we wrote the essays and you know got the best marks we could. Uh, but I don't believe a lot of Australians, particularly as they leave school and grow up and you know, realise that the world is not quite as their geography or history teacher told them, uh, they will begin to see that this is a bit more serious than what that sort of a chap up front was teaching them, uh, 10 years previously.
0: But it is, a, I mean, it is a fairly um, comprehensive and persuasive case. It's deeply embedded across the entire curriculum that Australia was was invaded and genocide was committed and that the white inheritors of this wonderful prosperous and free country owe a, a generations old debt to the descendants of the original inhabitants. That's a, that, that you know, humans are programmed to seek or to look for justice wherever they go. And I think a lot of young people have been conditioned into thinking that there is a, uh, a debt owed to the indigenous, which could manifest in this voice.
1: I think people want to do the right thing by Aboriginal people, um, and here's a suggestion as to what they might do. Now, when they draw their first paycheck and pay tax, they might realise that there's such a huge disconnect between what happened 235 or so years ago and the present generation, I think they might say, what is the connection? Why are we paying people 10 generations on? And by the way, they will probably reflect as well, that Australians have been very generous to Aboriginal people and have been so for a couple of generations, um, not always to good effect. They might also reflect on this, that 80% of Aboriginal people are doing about as well as they are. So what's going wrong is just with the 20% who are trapped, if you like, on Aboriginal land, living the dream, a white man's dream. It's not not the dream that Albanese has, or rather, I suppose, Albanese wants to keep this game going. The the phalanx of people behind him today uh, want to keep this thing going and it's meant to award all the rewards to a privileged Aboriginal class, not help the last 20% to to adjust to the real life, the modern world in which we all live.
0: Indeed. They're not living the dreaming either, Gary, just quietly. Now you're on the committee of Recognise A Better Way, one of the unofficial no campaign groups. Let's talk about how this campaign, now that it's almost officially launched, uh from today given the wording of the question has been announced today let's look into how this whole campaign and 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 debate is going to unfold firstly what sort of funding does your organization get from the government and is the funding the government uh providing unfairly skewed towards the yes case
1: we receive nothing from the federal government. We don't expect there'll be anything, and, and that's been the whole tenor of the, the debate over this thing uh, on the machinery side. Um, we think we'll be awarded deductible gift recipient status. Uh, that has to be confirmed. Uh, but the principal yes case group, for constitutional recognition, um, had that confirmed a long time ago. And remember, they got $5 million from the Paul Ramsey Foundation, which is an outrage. Uh, I've complained to the Charities Commissioner about that. Uh, we're not going to receive money from those sorts of uh, lefty charitable groups. But I tell you what, we will receive money, and I've had phone calls already today, from just good people who do not want to see this, this huge change to our system of government, which for the first time ever would introduce group rights. No one else has group rights and they would attain to one particular group alone. That, that is simply unfair.
0: Is there a lot of money waiting in the wings for that DGR status to be approved for your for your organisation?
1: I certainly hope so, Fred. I mean, I, I, I can't predict, but there are a lot of people who are very disturbed by this and you're quite right, the sort of campaign kicks off now. I think until now, it, it's been uh, it's sort of something that you know runs in the newspapers but is becoming real as it becomes more real and people focus that they will compulsorily go and vote on this proposition later in the year. I think the money will start to flow and that will enable us to get out uh, our very good arguments. I mean, we have substantial papers on the business, the design of The Voice... Substantial papers on the treaty, and in progress is a substantial paper on this thing called truth telling, which, as you know, is is a very one-sided concept. We'll tell our truth, which is the stories of successful Aboriginal pathways, successful lives. That that's the truth. Most Aborigines are, are doing are doing well, as well as anyone else. Uh, it's that last group that have been trapped, and Albanese's. Beast, radical beast of a proposition. Quite frankly, will do nothing for them.
0: Well, the popularity of the yes case, according to polls, is decreasing ever so slightly. But would it be naive to think that that is a trend that uh, that the popularity of the voice can't bounce back in some way?
1: It it probably will bounce back to the extent that uh, the government uh, uh, will begin an advertising campaign. It's meant to be neutral, but i don't believe that um, and there is this big money flowing into yes case by the CEOs who buy forgiveness of their sins or whatever uh, churches are pitching in and uh, various charitable money left charitable organizations um, okay uh, so it might kick up again but i think the yes case is very thin, or rather, well, the case is thin, but the support for it, according to our research and anyone we talk to, it's thin. It, it's just a feeling we'd like to help. And we're saying, you we recognise it that way. Yeah, we want to help too, but the Albanese package is not the way to do it. In fact, it will destroy reconciliation if, if that's an important thing. Uh, frankly, we already think we are reconciled. 70% of Aboriginal marriages with it. another Aborigine means, I think we're reconciled, okay? But in formal terms, what is dividing us and putting a race-based voice in the Constitution going to do for reconciliation? Well, it'll be it,
0: um, Just before we move on to you know the, the arguments themselves, but just looking at it again from a marketing perspective, this is timed, the, the actual uh, referendum is timed to happen soon after the end of the footy season and if I'm not mistaken, the two major codes will be dragged into this to be very emphatic uh, promoters of the Yes campaign. Do you think they'll have an influence? I think they could. I mean, it could be huge.
1: Uh, Fred, they, they could, but people do distinguish between uh, that big burly bloke on the ground running around whom they adore to touch down the footy or kick it through the goals. When they get off, you know, and they start to sort of say, oh, you yeah, it's going to two halves; it was really good and all that sort of stuff, they're not credible. They're just not credible. I think once, once the penny drops, this is about constitutional change, people think, oh, hang on, this is, this is and this is the rule book. And all of that palaver that will come from the footy codes and other sporting codes, I think, will drop away. So uh, my view, even in marketing terms, the, the footy codes are going to do themselves... A lot Of damage by trying to interfere with the rule book of Australia and to make it unfair. Now, Australians will not appreciate that. You don't run onto the footy field uh, and have it tilted or have the rules in one direction or one, one's allowed to go offside and the other isn't. depends on the footy code there. Uh, they'll just see it. And so, our marketing terms, I tell you what, will be, be very straight between the eyes as we get closer to the buck. Right now, we just want to educate people and let them understand the arguments and the size of this package that uh, the albanese government is suggesting but come closer we will sharpen the tools and make sure people know when they go into the ballot box it's a tick for the no case
0: well i'm alarmed that this is up at all really because i mean indigenous welfare became a big issue this year when violence on the streets of alice springs got out of hand earlier this year Now here's a line from a report that was rushed out before Prime Minister Anthony Albanese visited Alice Springs in February. It said, "'Aboriginal people face disproportionate disadvantage at every level of our society." Every level, Gary, as you said earlier, it's only 20% of Indigenous people who need to be rescued from disadvantage, and I don't think the voice is even gonna help them anyway.
1: No, this is it's all about, it's an ideology of groupthink. Uh, it's identity politics. It says, if you're Aboriginal, you must think this way. You must be with us. And uh, we can't solve any problem unless we solve the problem with all of us. Well, I'm sorry, that's, that's a recipe for death. You just leave out the last group who are struggling to find how the heck this society works. And the only thing that... I understand is if you complain to the white man, they'll give you more stuff. In doing so, it's been happening for two generations. You become radically disabled. There is nothing we won't do for them, and therefore there's nothing they can do for themselves. Now, that's not the the, the track that Pearson and Langton took. Up. These are brilliant people who got up and out, moved on. Uh, same with Jacinta Price, Warren Mundine, and lots of my Aboriginal friends. They found, if you like a trick to that universal culture that tells you how to operate in this modern world. Now, we've been cruel to not teach that same trick of our culture, if you like, to the last 20%. And it's Aboriginal leaders themselves who prevented that knowledge. That's that's the appalling thing. And these 24 professionals, that's what they'll be, professional CEOs of Aboriginal patrol Organizations, to Canberra, and I just keep bashing away, asking more and more and more and more from the taxpayer so they can control more services, which will still keep 20%. Of them.
0: Yeah, oh, appalling is the right word for it, Gary. I couldn't agree more. What did you make of the Prime Minister getting emotional about it today? It wasn't wasn't very edifying, was it?
1: It, it wasn't. It, it does show you that uh, the, the man is is fragile uh, when he gets on to these issues. Uh, he wasn't weeping when he locked us in on the nuclear submarines. Thank goodness. <laughs> when it comes to this, I think you've got to say, uh, Albanese, you're still that 18-year-old kid who joined the left of the Labor Party, or whatever it was, you know, 40-something years ago. This is not mature behaviour. This is not a mature proposition. I'm not saying you... You, you can't get uh, emotional about this issue. I get very emotional about it. I tend to get a little bit angry to what's being done here. Albanese knows that this is a political move. You know, Brett Walker, the Great Silk, has, has wiped it all, has revealed everything that says it's politics. Yeah. It's about
0: politics. It is. And it's emotional politics, Gary. That's, you know, I mean, he, he got emotional because it was an emotional proposition. It's got nothing to do with helping people's lives. Yeah, but let's let's move on to, sorry, let's move on to uh, opposition leader Peter Dutton. He's still prevaricating. Shouldn't he just come out and say, sorry, this idea is stupid, we're not backing it? Uh,
1: I think he should. Uh, Now, uh, again, timing, he might want to wait till after the Aston by-election, because often you you don't want to disturb things I know at at a critical moment. But the day after the Aston by-election, which is only in a week or so, you must come out and say no to this proposition. We now know the proposition. We know the lack of details because there are just these general principles now. I mean, um, Professor Greg Craven, who's possibly the architect of a lot of this nonsense, with great respect, he knows it's gone way over the top too far. He's now... He's in a very dark place now. He's been on a radio show this morning saying, this is terrible, this is worse than I could ever have conceived. Although he's still saying he's hanging in there, and hopefully there happy for some amendments on the way through. So perhaps Peter Dutton is waiting for, and probably in this sense, he's got to wait for the parliamentary debate and then he can make a formal position. But I can tell you, uh, nearly every Nat, national party member And nearly every Liberal is a dead set no. They are just waiting for the starter's gun. And I'll say to them, uh, please, we will work with you. We'll help uh, with the arguments, the pamphlets, the resources. We'll brief you on our intelligence, our marketing. Let's, Let's get together. We need troops on the ground and MPs are very good
0: at that. Well, hopefully some of our viewers can, uh, can help you out too, Gary. Thanks so much for your time.
1: Thanks indeed, Fred.
0: That's former Labor Minister Gary Johns, who served under Bob Hawke and Paul Keating back when Labor wasn't as woke as it is today. Gary is also on the Committee for Recognise A Better Way. Google them if you want to give them a hand, which I thoroughly recommend. Well, that's all from me tonight. Thanks for watching. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can find me at at Fred Paul, that's F-R-E-D-P-A-W-L-E, or follow ADH on at A-D-H-T-V-A-U-S. And you can catch all the latest from ADH's rapidly expanding lineup, including Alexandra Marshall, Daisy Cousins, David Flint, Nick Cater, Lyle Shelton, and of course, the great Alan Jones, by going to adh.tv or downloading our app, or find us wherever you get your podcasts. ADH is the new home for common sense commentary, and there is no shortage of things to comment about these days. I'll see you again tomorrow at 7pm. Good night.